Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Did we get the kiddos off okay? Did everybody get off to, to class all right? All right. Let's, uh, let's open today with prayer. Let's do that. Father God, we come before you this morning. We are thankful for this day. Thank you for the, the break in the cold. It was so nice to, uh, to step out to the car and forever to only be freezing. <laughs> Father, we, um, we lay this morning before you. We are seeking your face. We are seeking your wisdom. We are seeking to have your word open up to us. We have gathered here together in your name. And Father, we are seeking your presence. We are seeking a closer relationship with you. So, Father, we just ask that you draw near, that you draw near now with us, that um, your presence fills this place as we open your word. Father, we are seeking to be less and to have more of you. We ask all of that in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, quick announcements, because um, I always get them wrong, so I try and do them quickly. Um, <laughs> But the next food bank is February 12th and 13th, um, so write that on your calendars, um, the 12th and the 13th. Um, Bible studies will be resuming, like I say, here shortly. Um, we've got surgeries coming up and recoveries and all that. I think um, the Tuesday morning ladies, Miss Jill has reached out to um, for, for their plan for uh, for getting back together, and then Miss Rhonda will we'll get, yep, and... Yes, I, I got to see Vernon on Friday, which was wonderful. He's still um, still a little rough around the edges. Um, yeah, but it was good to see him and good to see him back to being Henri, which was fantastic. So um, that, was, that was good stuff, and hopefully he will be rejoining us soon. He's still um, on steroids for his lungs and those kinds of things. So um, keep praying for him for uh, recovery. So the biggest announcement, I know all of you saw this came out last week, right? Secret Church is coming. Oh, no, I'm the only one. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Uh, I, it was. It was a secret. That's why nobody knows. Uh, but it is April 23rd, 2021, so now starts my annual push for, uh, for Secret Church for coming up uh, in April. Um, all right, so we are in Luke chapter 17. Uh, we're in verses 11 through 19, if you guys want to open your Bibles up. Um, again, we are in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to praise God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So our theme for today, and I I, I titled this message, The Silent Majority. And that's what we see here is we see that the majority of these men, all of them received a blessing, a healing from God, but the majority of them were silent in their praise. So today our, our Our theme is is giving thanks. It's worship and it's praise. That's our theme for today. And our trend in our society right now is to be more casual, is to dress down, is to 
pull things down. And the idea was, when, when this came about, if you guys remember, you know, I, I do back in the 80s and 90s, everyone used to wear their, their finest clothes to church on Sunday. That used to be the thing to do. The problem with that was that it was exclusive, especially for families that couldn't afford the nice clothes. They would go to a church and they would feel alienated. They would feel left out. That's why we saw an entire movement, um, especially coming out of the West Coast, of, of churches that intentionally dressed down, where it was, it was just a blue jeans and, and, and a Bible. And that way was more welcoming to people. And that was the, the entire idea. And you notice that we do that here, that we try and be fairly casual because we want to be welcoming. However, the effect we have seen is that it, it somewhat degrades the value of things. And we have a hard time, I've noticed we have a hard time demonstrating how much we value or appreciate people and places and events. We have a hard time with it. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it talks about Moses when he uh, encountered God. And, and we see this because we should have a certain measure of awe, a certain measure of respect. It should rock us to our core a little bit when we are encountering God or when we are intending to encounter God. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Go to Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him and a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord. That's fascinating, isn't it? That heaven has a standing army. I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. See, meaningless ritual is just that. It's meaningless does nothing. And quite frankly, God doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when we just give him meaningless ritual, when we just go through the process, when we wear things for show or when it's all for externals. But ritual is also, it's a tool. It's a tool that we can use to express our respect, our value, our mission, and our purpose. I said this a few weeks ago, to let our decoration be our declaration of our doctrine. So how much effort is your time with God worth? A lot of times when we think about these things, we think about the people 
around us. We think about the other folks. We want to make sure that our audience or that our company or that the other people are comfortable. One of the things that certainly I haven't done is consider God. Is consider what, is, what does God want? And I believe that God will meet us wherever we are, however we are. But the question is really about my heart. Is my heart ready for an encounter with God? Is my heart respectful and honoring God? And how am I showing that? See, it really doesn't matter who is at church. It doesn't matter what they look like or how much money they have. The question is, am I ready to give thanks, to worship, to praise? There's no uniform requirement. But like I said, it is a question of what is in your heart. I was thinking about Abraham. It's one of the things that it cracks me up. Every single time Abraham had an encounter with the Lord, he built an art altar. If you were traveling around Israel at the time, you'd be walking along and there'd be this stone thing. You'd be like, oh, Abraham was here. <laughs> but everywhere he went, every time that he had an encounter with God, he built an altar to the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? So I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 28. We have a, a picture that we're going to put up here. These are a, a picture of the, the priestly garments. And it's fascinating that this is in the Bible. When we look at these things, we see the, the, the standard that God set for his priests to have an encounter with God. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're seeking is we're seeking to have a genuine encounter with God and to offer him thanks for the things that he has done for us. But look at how he tells these guys to dress. He says, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, one of of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of the birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided gold chains of, of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. Then the breast piece. Fashion a breast piece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and the finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. 
The third row shall be jacinth, agate, um, and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. For the breastpiece, make braided gold chains of pure gold like a rope. Make two gold rings for it. It keeps going. An entire chapter, all the way down to linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching them from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. It's a heck of a statement, isn't it? That they wanted to set those guys apart as, as kings and priests and that they wanted to be visible. That, and it's one of the things I was, I was thinking about. Um, you know, all the, the pastors that I've had growing up, most of them have been either, either Methodist or Presbyterian, so they all had robes. And it was one of the things that that was, whenever they put on those robes, they were... It was serious. It was time to, to meet with God. But that's why. It was an outward appearance change of their intention. They were letting their decoration be their declaration of their doctrine. Think about the Sabbath. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Like I say, the question is, how much effort do we put into honoring God? How much effort do we put into giving thanks? And if we were to flip over to Galatians and Romans, it tells us we're not under the law. It's one of the big questions that was, that was tossed around in the, in the New Testament era. How much of the law do we have to follow? And the conclusion was that we're not. I, I really honestly believe that if Peter had chosen, that, that he could have put us under the law, that we would be all following those ceremonies and rites. But I think that that was something that God allowed him to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. But it still doesn't change our, our, the status of our hearts. It still doesn't change the obligation of our hearts. See, the thing about God is he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. One of the big themes that we've been talking about these last three sessions is how Jesus intentionally affirmed the Old Testament. He didn't wipe it out. He didn't succeed it. He didn't say, no, 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 don't just, just completely disregard that. He said, no, you have to reconcile everything. You have to reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament. You have to reconcile the old covenants with the new covenants. And that's what we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with, how do I do that? How do I, as a, as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian, reconcile the requirements of the Old Testament? How do I honor God with the same heart that we see shown in the Old Testament, with the Old Testament priests? That's what we're looking for, is to have the same heart. So let's jump into our, into our scripture. So we've got a map we're going to put up here because, you know, if there's nothing you walk away with from today. At least you'll see have a geography lesson. <laughs> but um, you can see on the map, so this is a map of Israel um, at the very top, and you can see the red line that's on there, and that, that basically just traces Jesus' paths um, from up in the, the north, up at Capernaum, down to Jerusalem, and then back, and then back down again. But 
Um, if you look up there, um, so there, what the scripture tells us is that they're on the border at a town on the border in between Samaria and Galilee. So where the purple meets the red at the very top. Um, a lot of the scholars said that they think that they're probably at Ephraim is the, the town where they were. That doesn't necessarily say that. The scripture doesn't say that. That's just a guess. But you can see the border there. The purple is, the, is Samaria. Um, the red is, is um, the Galilee area. And you can see where they were coming from. They were coming from Capernaum um, through Nazareth and then down, um, headed on their way to Jerusalem. It's important to note that this is the last time. Jesus isn't coming back. They're headed to, to, to Jerusalem, and this is it. He'll be crucified at the next Passover. I was thinking about that, that... Um, Well, we'll get there in just a moment. First point is, it's good to remember when we look at this that these are real places, that these are real events, that these are true things that happen. These are real people. When we talk about these 10 guys being miraculously healed, this happened. One of the things that we can do in our minds is kind of separate out the, the, the two things. We can say, well, you know, yeah, I, I kind of loosely believe that these are real places. I kind of loosely believe that these are real things. But we don't realize that right now, if you wanted to, you could grab Google Maps, type in these places, and it would give you directions. I think it tells you to jump in a canoe to go across the ocean like 5,000 miles because the guys at Google have a sense of humor. But <laughs> it would tell you how directly to get to each of these places. You could go today and walk this path. You could see these places with your own eyes. There's a lot of Christians that do that, and I think that's healthy. But the point is that if you have doubts, if you have concerns about what you are reading in the Bible, and if if someone has said something to you to make you worry about the accuracy of the Bible, test it. Don't be afraid to grab your Bible and look and dig and scratch and claw. That book's been here for 2,000 years. It's not going anywhere. Remember, we read a couple sessions ago what Jesus said. He said, it's easier for the heaven and the earth to pass away than for my word to pass away. That's what he said. Just in, um, in the New Testament, there are 63 cities and towns that are named, named places. There's like 300 locations in the New Testament alone that are named places that we can find on a map that you can point out. There are people that are recorded in secular history that you can find. The point is, bring your fears and your doubts. Bring your questions, all of them, to bear onto the Scriptures. Bring it right there. It can take it. It can take any of your questions. It can take your doubts. However, I would, I would caution you. Because <laughs> this book, it contains life-changing stuff. When you bring yourself earnestly to the book. God's going to speak to you, and it isn't always pleasant, but it is always good. (laughs) Thing is that Scripture is complete and sufficient for its intended purpose. We're going to go to 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing major, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could go on. We could go over to, uh, to Galatians chapter 1, where it says, No other gospel. It says, I'm surprised that you are turning to another, another gospel so soon. And he says, even if I were to preach another gospel than the one that I originally shared, that I would be to, to be put out of the church. One of my favorites, I, I go to it all the time, 2 Timothy 3.16. talks about being an approved workman, but also talks about the sufficiency of Scripture. Next thing we want to go to is that goodbyes are important. Like I said, this is the last time. Jesus would not go back. He would not go home again. It's kind of striking, isn't it, to think about last things, last times? And it's so very true. I was thinking about my, uh, I had real, four really good buddies that I used to hang out with. We were in a band together in high school. We hung out together even, even after high school. The thing is, there was a last time. There was a last time that we all played together. There was a last time that we, we got on a stage and, and, and played out our probably really bad, but we loved it, music. There was a last time that we, that we ate together. There was a last time that we all, all hugged, that we all we had this uh, storage shed that we had rented for practice. This, uh, this place, for some reason, they had installed electrical outlets in, this, in these storage sheds, and it became the place for bands to, to go and have practice because, of course, nobody else wanted you making noise. And this was down by the river, you know, so it was far enough away. And, and it was open 24 hours a day, so you could be there until, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., as, as boys are wont to do. And, uh, and you could be down there making noise. So there was like three or four bands, and we got to know, of course, a few of the other ones that were down there practicing. But I said there was a last time. And I, I remember uh, packing that place up and, and getting the stuff out of it. And it's bittersweet. You know, it's one of the nice things about social media, why we kind of are attached to it, because now we don't lose people the same way. All those people that have passed through our lives, we can still see them. We can still see what's going on with their lives. We can still see how they're doing, even though it's been years down the road. I was thinking about um, when, uh, when Brooke and I got married, they do something absolutely amazing, something that I, I did not do growing up, but that we all do now. Whenever somebody leaves our house, we walk out onto the step and we wait till they, they pass out of the driveway. We walk them out. Something I didn't do before, but it's something that I look forward to now, that we know that, that goodbye is so important. So Jesus has said goodbye to Capernaum. He said goodbye to his home, to Nazareth, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops in this town. It's crazy. He does what he always does. He's teaching and healing and praying as he goes. And he comes across these 10 lepers. And 
I had to do this study on leprosy because I'm a science geek like that. I have to, I have to know. Um, officially, it's known as Hansen's disease. It's named after a Dutch scientist who finally named the bacteria um, that causes leprosy. It's interesting. If you read the Bible, you don't get this impression, but it's actually pretty hard to get. Um, 95% of people in the world are naturally immune to Hansen's disease, um, and it transmits through continuous contact through the air. Um, through the, just like how COVID does, through the, the moisture in your breath and, and out your nose, um, it transmits through the air. What's another fascinating thing is it actually takes between five and 20 years for symptoms to develop for the disease. So pointing out exactly when and where you got it um, is, is, you know, pretty hard to do. Crazy thing also, another reason to avoid Texas, armadillos carry it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Texas isn't that bad. But it causes, as we know, the lesions on the skin. And it's interesting, they're talking about the, the, the skin pigmentation, how um, on dark skin, people actually will cause light blotches. And there's, a, there's two different types of Hansen's disease. And then on, on uh, light skin, people, it will cause dark, dark and red blotches. Um, but that, those blotches are actually the, the bacteria that's growing. And more importantly, it actually causes nerve damage. When they talk about um, people with leprosy, how they would lose limbs, they say it's actually because well, what happened is their, their limbs would go numb, and then they would, they would be unable to see, sense when they were getting damaged, when their, their fingers, their toes, their arms, their legs were getting damaged, and they would end up losing them um, because of that, because of loss of sensation, not necessarily as part of the disease. But socially, even today, Lepers are considered unclean. Leprosy is still not super common. There's only about 200,000 cases per year uh, throughout the entire world, which is remarkable. But the, where it happens is usually in third world countries and undeveloped nations in the subtropical area through um, Asia and especially India. Um, they talk about a lot of cases. But people that have it are generally still put into uh, clinics or colonies, into groups, and they are cast out from society. People are afraid of, of catching this disease. They don't want it to spread. And so they, they keep them in these isolated places. And it's important to think about these 10 guys and know that even though some of them are Jewish and some of them are Samaritan, they're all in this together because they all have the same disease. They have kind of their own social structure because they have been cast out of society. Think about physically, they're unable to work. Um, think about the work of the time, ranching and, and, and farming, even trade work. They're not going to be able to do because the, the, their likeliness to be injured is high. And even if they were to get together a, a group of guys and maybe build a house, who's going to buy it? Um, it's just not going to happen. So while they're cast out from society, they're dependent on that very society for their sustenance, for food, for water, for all of those things. Um, so it had to be a very hard place to be. We're going to flip over to Leviticus chapter 14, verses 1 through 32. And the reason we have this in here is that this is the process that anyone who was cured of any skin disease, not specifically leprosy, but any skin disease would have to go through. It's an eight-day process. And it talks about, and I really just want to go through uh, the, at least the first part here um, up to verse 8. It says, These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. That way they don't transmit the disease. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood 
scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it, together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease, and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird in the open fields." And then they have to go through and they must uh, wash their clothes. They have to shave off all their hair. They have to bathe in water. Um, then they have uh, uh, some other uh, um, sacrifices they have to make. There's a, they have to uh, sacrifice two male lambs and a ewe lamb. Um, if they can't afford that, then they have to go to a, a grain offering. Um, and then uh, they have, there's a guilt offering. There's a sin offering. Um, that all that has to go through. And like I say, it says on the eighth day, they must bring them for their cleansing to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest is to take the lamb for the guilt offering together with the log of oil and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He shall slaughter the lamb for the guilt offering and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The priest is to pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and with his right forefinger sprinkle some of the oil from his palm seven times before the Lord. It's quite a regulation. So when Jesus sends these guys off to the priests, that's what he's sending them off to do, is to be checked by the priest outside of the camp so that they can start this eight-day process of being restored. And somewhere along the way, as they're walking, they're healed. It's kind of an interesting way. I, I always want a formula. I always want a recipe. I always want Jesus to do things the exact same way so that I know the magic words, so that I know the magic process. We know so many people that are he- hurting, that are in need of healing, that their physical bodies are, are suffering. And we so want those things to be healed. And I always want a key. I always want something. But every single time Jesus says, no, we're going to do it different this time. This time he doesn't touch him. The last time when he, he, he healed a leper, he actually touched the guy. I would draw your attention, though, to that ritual in, in verses 5 through 7. It's kind of fascinating that one bird is sacrificed, the other is washed in the blood of the other one, and then released. Kind of an interesting picture. So these lepers, they cry out to Jesus. It's fascinating that they know who he is. But everywhere that Jesus has gone, he has been praying and teaching and healing. And they call him master. It's a title of respect. And they ask him for mercy. And that demonstrates at least that they, they at least believe in Jesus as a healer and a teacher. It's also interesting that they're obedient. That when Jesus tells them to go before the priests, even the Samaritan, they go. That they have enough faith to know who Jesus is, to cry out to him, to believe that he can heal them, and then to obey in what he tells them to do. I have to tell you that this part is kind of hard, isn't it? Because we're all believers in Jesus, right? We all take him as our Lord and Savior, right? We all believe in him as Messiah, right? So let's go over to, uh, to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Because we're about to throw some, sh- some shade on these lepers. But first, we're going we're gonna to throw it up here first. This is the parable of the persistent widow. It says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. 
It said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to him, even though I don't fear God or care what about, what about people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Underline that verse. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, these lepers are remarkable. For as much shade as we're going to throw on them here in just a moment, we have a hard time asking God for things. Really asking Him. Really asking Him boldly for things. I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I was telling Nathan this, that I do this. I have, I have two really distinct buckets that I put things in. I have my stuff, and I have God's stuff. Over here is my life, my work, my everything, my education. So if things are going bad at work, you know whose fault it is? It's my fault. If things are you know, provided for at my house, you know who, who did it? I did it. This little bucket over here is mine. And these two buckets... They don't, they don't mix. My education, my work, my stuff built the stuff that's over here. So when it comes to, well, gosh, I need a promotion or I need a new job or I need something for my house or for my life or for my kids, well, either I saved for it or I didn't. Either I provided for it or I didn't. I don't ever dip over into the other bucket because this is the, the bucket that's in. See, it's a good dose of perspective because right there in my little bucket, I'm putting myself in the place of God. Because I'm saying, well, if I, if, I, if, I were, if I were to switch that around, if I were to put God in place of me there, I would be saying, well, God doesn't have a job for me. God doesn't have a race for me. God doesn't have a house for me. God doesn't have an education for me. If I take myself out of it, suddenly it goes, oh, actually, no, he's the, the king of the universe. He, he's got house money. He's got rent money. He's got food money. He's got education money. He's got jobs. He has all of those things that feed into our fears that we just don't ask for. The point is to be bold, to be aggressive with your prayers. God answers every single prayer that's thrown before him. The other says, yes, no, or wait. Those three prayers. Every, every single one that's lifted up to him, he answers in one of three ways. Yes, no, or wait. But be bold. Be aggressive. Ask for what you need. Ask for more than what you need. Was, Nathan and I were talking. Uh, Steve Harvey was, was talking about this very verse, and he was talking about this. He said, when I, was, when I was broke and I was living in my car, he said, I, asked, I prayed God every day for me to be wealthy. So I prayed for I prayed every day 
for God to be well, for me to be wealthy, and that I would talk about Jesus. So that's what I prayed for. And now look at where he is. We don't want to do the, the prosperity gospel thing, but we also don't want to mute our prayers. We also don't want to separate our prayers. We're talking about having a heart of worship. We're talking about having a heart of praise, giving it all over, and not separating things into those separate buckets. Tear down those walls. Pray fearlessly and boldly for the things in your life. Not just for yourselves, but for everyone around you. Pray fearlessly and boldly. So let's go to Jesus' actions. Jesus does not tolerate sickness and suffering. He doesn't like it. That's an incredible thing to know about God, that our physical bodies he cares about. Go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew chapter 15, verse 30. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The healing power of Christ is proof of his deity. Christ repeatedly demonstrated his position as the great physician. No one before Christ and no one after Christ has demonstrated a complete command of our plane of existence. Wind and waves obey, demons obey, bodies restored, sickness destroyed, death defeated. I was reading this most wonderful quote, and I'm sorry, it's not coming to me where, where I read it from, but Jesus wrecked every single funeral that he ever attended. Absolutely ruined him. Even his own. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43 is where Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. It talks about she's asleep. And no, no, no. It's a little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And then told them to get her something to eat. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up, and he touched the bier where they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Amen. John chapter 11 is where uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
stands there at the open tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. It's worth noting again the radical change in our world since Christ left. At the time, leprosy was a death sentence, a slow degeneration with loss of feeling, loss of limb, and a life of rejection from society, incapable of working, contributing, building a family. You were outcast and yet dependent on the charity of the people rejecting you. Now, if you, contra- if you contract the, the World Health Organization, they will send you the course of antibiotics to cure it for free anywhere in the world. Amen. Isn't that incredible? For over 10,000 years of recorded history, leprosy destroyed lives. Now it can be cured with a little pack of pills. Mumps, measles, rubella, polio, Legionnaire's disease, even COVID. It's incredible that a disease that came out of China a year ago that has been going across the entire world, we have a vaccine for. That's absolutely amazing. If you need proof that there are miracles being worked, the fact that a a disease can be prevented or treated with a shot, that's amazing. You guys remember back in the 80s and 90s when they thought HIV was going to absolutely devastate the entire world? It was going to burn like fire across the entire planet. Now, two pills a day people take and they live. That's absolutely incredible. And if that isn't testament enough for you to the power of the Holy Spirit working throughout the entire world, there's nothing I can say to you. Jesus' power of healing is so prevalent all over the world that one of the biggest arguments we have in our country right now is access to health care and how it's going to be provided. Not the fact that it exists, not the fact that all of these things can be cured. We get mad Right? We, call, we, we, we talk down to countries if they don't have hospitals like ours. We get kind of mad. Oh, well, you know, those guys, they're not, you're not quite on the same level. We get mad if people don't have access to health care. That's absolutely incredible. In 2,000 years to go from zero health care, it doesn't even exist. Doctors are using stuff that they picked from the field outside at best to being able to cure diseases. We're going to have two members of our family that are going to have a surgery this week. And the odds are good. The odds are they're going to come out of that perfectly fine. It's scary, and there are things that can go wrong, and we are certainly going to pray for God's healing hand on it. But this thing happens every single day in our little town of Grand Junction. We're not talking about a major city or you know, some major place where there's millions of people. In our little town, people are getting cured of cancer right now. That's absolutely amazing. So this little miracle is kind of understated. Jesus doesn't touch them like he did in Luke chapter 5. Instead, I like this because of COVID, he was physically distant. Maybe he had his mask on. I don't know. But while he was physically distant, he tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. All 10 of them are obedient. And as they're going to the temple, they're healed. 
And remember, just because I've been rambling for a while, that going to the priest is as much about being restored in society as it is being restored in spirituality and health. What's an interesting side effect of that, if you think about it, all of these healings that, that Jesus did, remember that all of these people, we've heard about like the, the um, uh, Lazarus being brought before the, the Sanhedrin, before the leadership. Same thing with these guys. For eight days, the priests in this town, of, probably of Ephraim, had to see these 10 guys. And forever, they would have to testify before the world that Jesus of Nazareth healed these 10 guys. Forever. Isn't that incredible? When you think about these guys who were really angling to kill Jesus, and they would kill him down in Jerusalem, would forever have to testify that Jesus was the healer. How did you get healed? Jesus spoke, and then he told us to come to you. The next point about that is Jesus is reaffirming the nation of Israel and the validity of the law. It's one of those things that I, I wrestle with. Because if Jesus had wanted to, he could have just said, you're done. Go on your way. Be, have peace. You're, you're done. Instead, he said, no, no, no. Follow the law. Go back to the priests. Go through the ritual. It's important. When we talk about it, 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 it drives me nuts when I hear churches talking about joining in the, the boycott, boycott, divest, sanction movement. Clearly, they have not read this passage in the Bible where Jesus sends people back to the priests and says, no, 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 not one, not one jot nor tittle of the law is going to pass away until I come back. That's incredible. If he wanted the nation of Israel gone, if he decided he no longer wanted the nation of Israel to be a thing, he would have done it. He would have said, no, 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 I have done away with all of that. I'm done with them. I'm wiping it all away. Instead, he says, no, 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 go back to the priests, be restored. Think about John chapter 2, which is when uh, Jesus does this twice. He goes and he clears the temple courts. Why? Because the integrity of the temple was important to him. People were being ripped off in the temple courts of his father. He wasn't very pleased about it. He actually premeditates, fashions a whip, and goes out there and drives them out. Then we get on to the next part. So this one guy, and there's always one, He couldn't continue on. That moment happened where he was healed, and he had to. He had to run back to Jesus. He fell at his feet, praising God in a loud voice. And Jesus asked this kind of rhetorical question. He says, we're not all ten cleansed. Where where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the man, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's a bittersweet moment, isn't it? Because we can, we can presume that at least some of the other nine were Jewish, simply because Jesus refers to the one guy as a Samaritan. But he asks those three rhetorical questions. The answer is, were not all ten cleansed? Yes. Yeah, all ten were, were healed. He knows that. He, he healed them all. Where are the other nine? The answer is fairly sad, isn't it? Because they had gone on to church and they left God outside. And they would follow through with the ritual. They would be restored to society and maybe gain a life they never thought they could. But they had an opportunity for more, didn't they? They knew who Jesus was. They called him master. They cried out to him. They had faith they could be healed. 
And the answer to their prayer was yes. There's really absolutely nothing wrong with anything they did. Nothing. But they missed an opportunity to spend time with Christ, to lift up their voices in praise, to lift their voices like the angels in the throne room. And in doing so, the condition of their understanding and the condition of their hearts is revealed. And the same is true for us, that the condition of our hearts is revealed in our decoration, in our declaration. Their decoration was the the trappings of the temple, the ritual. And there's nothing necessarily wrong. There was no love for God, no love for Christ, no changed heart in the face of the miraculous. The healing eased their suffering, and believe you me, God is constantly working to ease the suffering of people everywhere. However, ultimately, the miracles testify to Jesus as the Messiah. The miracles are not the point. Just like when we do food bank, the food is not the point. They are a calling to find Jesus. It was rare, and it was usually not the Jewish people who found Christ in the miraculous. I was thinking about the Roman centurion. He didn't even see the miracle performed, and yet he believed and praised God. See, the great tragedy of, of Scripture is really the Levites, the leader of, leaders of the church. They had mountains and mountains of evidence heaped upon them. They had direct testimony from Jesus over and over and over again. Hundreds of members of the clergy personally witnessed the miracles of Jesus. And we can count on our hand the number who were humbled, who were astonished, who were driven to find Jesus as a Messiah. But this one guy, this one Samaritan, his life was changed. And then his heart was changed, and he ran back to Jesus. He fell at his feet and praised God in a loud voice. And he hears the words, that we all long to hear from Christ. Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So we're going to wrap this up. I've got a quote here from Spurgeon that I think wraps this up very well. There is this blessing in thankfulness that it is a manifestation of personal love. I love the doctrines of grace I love the church of God. I love the Sabbath. I love the ordinances. But I love Jesus most. My heart never rests until I can glorify God personally and give thanks unto the Christ personally. The indulgence of personal love to Christ is one of the sweetest things out of heaven. And you cannot indulge that personal love so well as by personal thankfulness, both of heart and mouth and act and deed. Let us not be part of the silent majority, those timid and cold souls who, in the face of the glory of the miraculous God, remain untouched, unchanged of heart. No, my fire is renewed, and I throw myself at his feet, astonished at the work of his hands. Amen? So we're going to go get the kids. Yeah, we're going to do a special prayer for over the kids today. So can we go... Can we go get him? You want to go wrangle him for me?
we have food, yes. I think we have a bunch of bread and bagels and all kinds of things that are exploding out of the food bank room. So, <laughs> yes. So the bottom line is, if your hands are not full when you enter the parking lot, no. <laughs> are they coming? Okay. With his mask on, I can't tell what the, that was an affirmative or a negative or a, there they're coming. We waiting for the protégés? Is that the last? Right. Didn't I do we want to bring the kids up here? Excellent. So kiddos, come on up here. We're going to pray over you. Yeah. Safety. I know, safety. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming. I think we got all the kiddos coming. Yeah. So Danette came to me this morning, and she was saying that she felt really led, like we uh, we needed to pray over our kids this morning. Um, she was feeling that that was something that we needed to do. And uh, love what Art always had to say, which was, the urge to pray can never come from the devil. So when uh, we get the urge to pray, it's, it's time to pray. So uh, I don't know if, can we gather? I don't know. But let's do whatever we can here. Let's pray over these kiddos. Yes, excellent. (laughs) Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we are thankful. We are thankful for your son. We are thankful for the many blessings you have given us, Father. We are are so thankful and so blessed by the children that you have put in our lives. Our, Our quiver is full, Father. Father, we would be lying if we didn't say that we were we were worried that um, with school and, and society and just the way that the world is going, Father, we um, we want to make sure that our kiddos are not only are safe but are, are thriving, that are blossoming, they are doing wonderfully. We want to see them exceed in every single way, and we know that the only way that that happens is with your blessing. So we're we're seeking that this morning, Father. We are seeking your blessing, that you would be covering them with your love as we know that you do, that you would be the loudest voice that they hear, that you would be the light to their feet, that you would be in front of them and behind them and to their right and to their left, that you would be in their coming and in their going and their weeping and their rejoicing, that you would be with them. Father, we ask that you look at the paths of their lives 
and that you keep them safe and that you give them lives that keep them on your path, that glorify your kingdom, that throughout every single moment of their lives that uh, you would be glorified, Lord. And Lord, we, um, as we're gathered here today as a church, we, uh, again, we want to lift up Leroy and, and Ed to you, that as they go into surgery, please, Lord, be with them. Guide doctors' hands. You could just get rid of that cancer. That'd be wonderful. And, uh, they would get in there and go, oh, we, we just don't have to do this. It's one all taken care of. But if that's not your will, Father, we know that um, just please be with those doctors as they, as they do their work. Father, we um, lift up our church to you. We are seeking to be on your mission, to be on your path, to be about your business. Father, please correct us. Do whatever it takes to, uh, to keep us on your work, to keep us doing the things that are pleasing to you, that you could look down here at this little place in Fruta and say, well done, my faithful servant. And if we are not, Father, please correct us that we could get on that path. We lift up our lives to you, Father, and we ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>